My name is Brett. I am pastor of this people. It's good to see all of you, especially you who are online and those who are with us for the very first time today. Bless you. Thank you for making us your church home for an hour. Um, we're going to get into the word today with respect to what it means for us as a people to participate in the small group format that we have in our congregation. Um, it's really good for us to do what we do like this in a congregational setting or virtually online. But we also have small groups that either meet in person, and that's safely according to CDC guidelines, or they meet on Zoom or Google Meets or Microsoft, whatever. Uh, in order to connect, we as a people have a desire and a need to be with one another in significant ways. And our small groups allow for that to happen in ways that are much more intimate than just here on a Sunday morning where you're listening to somebody talk. You can actually participate. And there are studies that you do online and get to know other people. And this is what makes us much more experientially family than just the concept of us being family that I went through last week in our uh, values and what, what our values mean to us. But we're going to look at a passage of scripture uh, that, that highlights somebody's conversion, uh, somebody's attachment to a group of people, and then their willingness to preach. Because today we're going to talk about our mission. Last week we talked about our values. Today we're going to talk about our mission. Before I do that, I'd like to speak about something that I kind of prefaced uh, last week in my comments regarding family because I had a number of people contact me about what it means to raise children. How do you do it well? And Cynthia and I don't know that we are experts. In fact, I don't know any experts on raising children. I do know people who are experienced and because we have done it with seven people, we do know something about it. You might be able to find somebody who can give you better advice. But I thought I would expand on the idea today to help those of you who have children and those of you who want to have children. There are five things that Cynthia and I have worked on very, very hard in order to make sure that we were on point with God's priority in raising kids. Five. And they're, they're pretty easy. It's, a, it's an acronym that I developed called DEEPIN. D-E-P-I-N. D-E-P-I-N. And it's discipline, equip, protect, instruct, and nurture. Discipline, equip, protect, instruct, and nurture. Parents are supposed to provide tremendous discipline for children, boundaries that allow them to know what they can and cannot do and what they should do, how they can stay within the lines. They are supposed to make sure that they know the, that when they break outside of the lines, which children have a very high skill level of doing, that there are consequences to their actions. And some people like to use the version of timeout. Well, that's okay, but it's not one that I prefer, primarily because it takes the parent out of the disciplinary role. It leaves the child all by himself to try to figure it out. And they usually do not have a relationship with God whereby they can process well what's going on. They just get mad, or they get quiet, or they get resolved, but they don't re get resolved spiritually. And they walk back out, and after time period is over, things seem to return to normal, but no progress has been made. So I like to participate with my children in their progress while I am disciplining them. 
and I use, we did use, uh, instruments that help us communicate truth. Home Depot paint sticks <laughs> help us communicate truth. And I realize this is a foreign, if not antagonistic idea to many people in our society that you would actually strike your child with something that, that would cause pain. Um, it's not violence. It's not abuse. It is discipline. And it allows them to understand the consequences that come immediately from their actions so that when they get older, they understand that even though the consequences might be a little bit delayed, they are coming. Secondly, the way we do it with respect to discipline allows for discipleship to happen in their own soul. That when we, when we disciplined our children, it was, you know what you did wrong. Yeah, you shouldn't do that again. Let's pray and ask God to forgive us. And they, they talk about what they did. They say, Lord, please forgive me for what I did. We have a moment of discipline whereby they feel the consequences of their misdeed. And then there's a prayer that I pray afterwards. And I do not release them from my presence until they are smiling. That takes a long time. It takes anywhere from five to ten minutes to make that to happen. But something was communicated other than just they did wrong. And something was built that cannot be built in a timeout construction in their soul about how they need to respond to God, how they need to respond to the brother. And then afterwards, there's a moment whereby they have, if they did something wrong and the wrong was to somebody else in the family, they got to go back and apologize and say three things. I'm sorry. Please forgive me. I won't do it again. This leads them to the best principles of what restoration looks like spiritually. So with discipline, it's discipleship. Secondly, equipping helping them to understand what it means to make good decisions, processing with them about how they think and what they, how they need to approach the world and, and what they think sometimes is wrong and what they think is right. Thirdly, protection. We believe that protection was important. Obviously, every parent does. But protection, not just from the dangers of the world, but protection from the dangers in your own house. What's watched on TV, what's communicated through MP3s, What's, what's happening on their phone, and mostly protection from me. Oh, I was not a threat to their well-being in terms of their, their physical uh, nature, but I was a threat in that I was a sinner. And sometimes my inconsistency in my house and action would not encourage them to do most right or be most right. And so I needed to make sure that I was protecting them sometimes from me by making sure that I got with God on a regular basis and asked him to change me. What I see wrong in my child is what's wrong in me. Change me. Make me better. If these kids had a better dad, they'd be better kids. I protected them from my flaws. Instruction. Continual instruction. Helping them understand how to evaluate life and to, to get smarter. Uh, those of you who homeschool, you know what I'm talking about. Those of you who are home instruction now, which is everybody, you know what I'm talking about. It's important for us to make sure our children know the difference between right and wrong and become knowledgeable and then nurture. What it means for us to nurture them, uh, care for them, be tender, affectionate to them. Dads, what it means to hug your, your daughters, which is kind of a, a neat thing, but hug your sons. Moms, what it means to be uh, nurturing as a family, creating an environment whereby the entire, the entire nuclear uh, group is helping each other become what they need to be. And, and we would have regular devotions as a family. 
whereby kids would have to come with whatever God taught them in, in our children's church or what they learned in their devotions that day, and they'd have to speak, and they'd have to share in front of all of us, no more than a minute or two. And if they had a special talent they wanted to do, some of them sang, and then we would pray for family members or we'd pray for things that are most important to the life of the church, and then I'd give a story, and then we'd, we'd conclude a story from the Bible. We'd conclude and it'd be about 15 minutes, but it was regular. And it was a nurturing environment for everybody. Figure out a way to do that. Okay, that is my preface to my sermon, which has nothing to do with my sermon. But because people wanted to know something about raising kids, I thought I would let you know. We're talking about the mission of Grace Covenant Church today. There are three things that are a part of our mission. One, to encounter Christ. Two, to experience community. And three, to extend the kingdom. Encounter Christ, experience community, and extend the kingdom. Our goal is to, to take, take everybody who comes to us and desires to be a part of us, to have them enter and then move through that process so that they can become effective witness, witnesses for Christ. We're going to look at Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9. We're going to read a large portion of scripture. Acts 9 verses 1 through 20. Acts 9 verses 1 through 20. It says, Now Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked for letters to, from him to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, whether men or women, he might bring them in shackles to Jerusalem. Verse 3. Now as he was traveling, it happened that he was approaching Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him, and he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul. Why are you persecuting me? Verse 5. And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But get up and enter into the city, and it will be told to you what you must do. Verse 7. And the men <clears throat> who traveled with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. And leading him by the hand, they brought him into Damascus, verse 9. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple in Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Get up and go to the street called Straight, and inquire at the house of Judas for a man named Tarsus, for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. Verse 13, but Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many people about this man, how much harm he did to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he is, has authority from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. 15, but the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and the kings and the sons of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer in behalf of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house and after laying his hands on him, said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you were coming has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Verse 18, and immediately the scales fell from his eyes. And he regained his sight, and he got up and was baptized. And he took food and was strengthened. 
Now for several days he was with the disciples who were in Damascus. Verse 20, and immediately he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogue, saying, he is the Son of God. Lord, help us as we study your word. One of the more unlikely converts to all of, in, in, in all of Christianity is Saul, a man who was trying to figure out how in the world he could stamp out everything that Jesus stood for and the people that stood for Jesus. His whole job was to figure out how he could take people and imprison them who loved Christ and were called followers of the way. He received letters from the chief priest to go to Damascus. He had done his job in Jerusalem to a large extent. And now he was trying to expand his influence to make sure that this movement did not expand in Israel. And on the way, God apprehended him. To encounter Christ is always jarring. It's never comfortable. Jesus is intent on tearing apart everything that you have built in order to construct something that he will build. And the reason he's intent on tearing apart that which you built is because it is destroying you and will not stand as a structure in which you can find safety and refuge. Only the stuff that he builds will last. And there is a storm coming to all of our lives. We cannot avoid it. It usually is not announced. There's no radar that lets us know it's coming. It just shows up. And that storm reveals the kind of structure upon which we have based our, the blueprint of our life. And that storm usually dest destroys that which we have built, if it's big enough. And Jesus wants the architecture upon which you build to be based on his scriptures, his word. And so mercifully, he tore apart everything that Brett had in mind. It was painful to watch the deconstruction process because I had wrapped my emotions around what I wanted. People who I loved the most thought I was crazy when I gave my heart to Christ. I mean, absolutely nuts. My dad wanted me to see a psychiatrist. My grandfather thought I was going crazy because he saw that I had a placement a seat at, in um, dentistry school and I had given it up to go into ministry and when I say given it up to go into ministry I had given it up to go into ministry when nobody was asking me to come and pay me to do what I was going to do I was actually going to have to go raise my support in order to be supported financially to go into ministry there was no job there and I don't know if you know anything about African American the African American community but when I was growing up you were taught to never ask anybody for a thing you're not a beggar. I, if I went to my buddy's house, my friend's house as a kid, if I was thirsty, I couldn't even ask for a drink of water. I couldn't ask for dinner. Nothing. I could ask for nothing because we were supposed to be self-sufficient. Make no judgments on whether that was right or wrong. I'm just letting you know that's the way I was brought up. So when I told my parents that I was going into ministry, they said, well, who's hiring you? I said, me. I'm going to be working for my church, but I'm hiring me. How? I'm going to go ask people for money that they might support me on a monthly basis. Embarrassed were they. They would all look at their friends who were asking, so Brett, 
Because you're firstborn, you're going to be a dentist like you. So when is he going to Meharry? Uh, yeah, about that. He's not. He, he resigned his seat. What? What's he going to do? He's going to go ask people for money in ministry. My parents had some prominence in the African-American community in Kansas City, and I can't tell you how embarrassed they were. My grandfather thought it was absolutely crazy. All my family distanced themselves from me, save my brother and sister, who had done all they could to try to hold on to the relationship they had with me, and for that I was grateful. Having Jesus dismantle the comforts and the structures that you have built is uncomfortable. And here Paul was on his way to do a job, and God interrupted him with a light that came from heaven. And and the thing that gets me beyond just the fact that Saul, who became Paul, was impacted by this moment, the thing that impacts me about him being impacted by this moment is this, that Jesus showed up personally. White light, a light that blinded him and knocked him to the ground. I don't even know what kind of light that is. Usually a force knocks somebody to the ground. This light had such a force, and light usually doesn't. It'll make you do this, but it won't knock you to the ground. There was something behind this. Knocked him to the ground. And the words were this. Saul, why are you persecuting me? The things that we do here on the planet to people directly impact Jesus. Jesus did not say, why are you persecuting my saints? Why are you hurting my church? He said, why are you persecuting me? Oh, it takes me back to Matthew 25. Where Jesus says, I want you to know, he's telling the story, a parable. I want you to know, come over here. You who are the sheep that get to be on my right hand. Why? Because when I was in prison, you came to visit me. When I was hungry, you fed me. When I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. When I didn't have a roof over my head, you invited me into your house. When I was sick, you came to visit me. And the people said, when, Lord, did we do any of that for you? We don't remember. He said, when you did it to the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. When we treat humanity, we treat God. We treat him bad, we treat God bad. We treat him good, we treat God good. He notices. Hear me. He notices. It would behoove all of us to put on our best manners with humanity. Because you do not know how God will receive it. Why, why, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Saul didn't get it. He said, who are you? I don't know what I'm doing. Are you kidding me? I don't even know who you are. I'm Jesus, who you are persecuting. No more words from Saul. We don't have any record that Saul knew who Jesus was when Jesus was walking on the planet. But we have every reason to believe that he heard most of the sermons that Jesus preached when, he, when, when Jesus was in Jerusalem. Jesus' hometown was up north in Galilee. But he would come down for the feasts and for other occasions. Three times a year he had to come for the feasts and stay for an entire week. And those would be the moments when he would teach in Jerusalem. Now there may be other times, but he was coming. And many times the rulers of the city, the, the Pharisees and Sadducees, would come to hear what he had to say. And Jesus would go to them and talk to them. 
We know that Saul was somewhere in the neighborhood of about four or five years, Jesus Jr., meaning if Jesus was 32, Saul was somewhere around 27, 28, and he was rising up the ladder of being somebody who had real prominence in the Jewish faith. So there's no, no reason to believe he wouldn't have been around when Jesus said some of these things. So when he said, it is Jesus, I'm Jesus whom you're persecuting, he had some reference point, not just with the theology of the people that he was persecuting, but with the person of Jesus Christ himself. We have a reason to believe he actually knew him. And now he was able to extrapolate that actually Jesus himself was being hurt by Paul, Saul, hurting the people that Jesus loved. Impacted him deeply. And I'm convinced of this. If you have a real encounter with God, I mean, a, a, a one that, that allows you to, to have your heart changed, your eyesight will be affected unalterably. You will never see the world like you used to. He was blinded to the reality of the world. And he could not open his eyes until somebody of a spiritual nature allowed him to, 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 to do so by the scales dropping, praying for him. And now he began to see the world differently. No longer was he viewing it according to the background from which he came. He was now viewing it according to the new reality that Jesus transposed on him when he blinded him. And when he blinded him, something happened to his ears. Whenever God does something really, really big, supernatural, in, in order to communicate to you, generally he does it because you haven't been hearing other ways. Did, did you hear me? In the book of Genesis, God spoke to Adam, says he came to walk with him in the cool of the day. All we have is conversation. No supernatural manifestation. God spoke to Abraham. All we have is conversation. No supernatural manifestation. None. Noah. No supernatural manifestation. We get all the way to the book of Exodus and, and we have Moses. Moses is caring for the sheep of his father-in-law Jethro. Jethro and, and he's on the mountain and all of a sudden he sees a bush that's burning but not being consumed. And he says, let me turn aside to see this sight. This is really unusual. And then the bush starts talking to him. Now, we know that Moses had already felt something in his soul with respect to the unique position he was in when he was in Egypt. He was born a Hebrew, saved from an extermination from the, the Egyptians who wanted to kill all the Hebrew baby boys, and then wound up being in Pharaoh's house, growing up a prince with some kind of authority, yet recognizing his Hebrew heritage. At the age of 40, he came into his own, his self-realization, and realized, maybe I can use my position to help my people over there who were in bondage. And he tries to save Israel by his own hand by striking down a taskmaster who was an Israelite oppressor, thinking that somehow this would gain him some credibility with the Israelites. It did not. Why? Because for the last 40 years, Moses had been identified as the oppressor and hated even more than the Egyptians because he was a Jew oppressing his own people. And so one act did not wipe away 40 years. And so when he killed the taskmaster, he thought he had gained some, some favor with, with all the Israelites. And, and he, he saw two, two Hebrews fighting the next day, a couple of days later. And he said, stop it. Why are you doing this? You're brothers. He said, who are you to judge us? 
You don't care about us at all. You're going to strike us down like you did the, the Egyptian? Moses said, uh-oh. I don't think what I tried worked. And he ran. Because he was a fugitive from justice and that Pharaoh realized he had flipped. And he said, I'm going to get you. So he ran. He wound up out in Midian. Territory outside of, way outside of Egypt. And for the next 40 years, he was now caring for sheep. We know that he felt something on the inside with respect to destiny. But probably tried to bury it for 40 years. Because he didn't know what to do. He was a failure when he tried. He felt like a failure for most of his adult life. Thinking that he was a Hebrew but acted like an Egyptian. What's wrong with him? Doesn't he love his God? Who is he? He had lost everything with respect to identity. And his whole idea about what he might be called to do as a person who lived in two worlds and somebody who could bring two worlds together, deliver his people. Oh, 40 years out of the world. And now he sees a burning bush. My sense is this, that God was trying to speak to Moses for a very, very long time. But Moses wasn't listening because he didn't want to go back. And so God says, let me create an environment that cannot be denied that will attract your attention burning bush and we know everything I just said is probably true because when the bush starts talking to him Moses, Moses kind, of, kind of says in the, in the whole chapter and a half I wish I had never turned aside meaning at the end of the conversation where God is telling Moses please go my people are crying out, I want you to go deliver them, and I will be with you. Tells him his name. He hadn't told anybody his name. God reveals some stuff. At the end of that conversation, every question that Moses has leads toward this. Find somebody else. Please, can't you choose somebody else? You know I've never been a good speaker. Who am I to go? I don't have any credibility. I go speak to a king. I'm not an ambassador. I'm not a king. Who am I? God answers every question. But Moses wasn't asking those questions to get answers. He was asking those questions to get out. How can I get out of this? If I can show you my inadequacy, maybe you'll go find somebody else. And when God says your inadequacy means nothing to me because I am with you and I make you adequate where you are inadequate, Moses then says, but I don't want to do it. I really don't want to do this. He had been running from God, from God for 40 years. So God had to turn on the supernatural. I'm convinced that Saul's conscience was bothering him from day one when he, he was there approving of Stephen Stoney. He was, a, he was a religious official that approved Stephen Stoney in Acts chapter 7. I'm convinced God was speaking to him, but he wouldn't listen. And so the Lord had to knock him down, blind him, and then his ears opened. Moses' ears opened when he saw something he'd never seen before. Saul's ears opened when he saw this light he'd never seen before. When you encounter Christ, hopefully your ears will open. Your eyes may not open to see everything you need to see, but you do need to recognize that your ears will open to hear what you might not have ever heard like you're hearing it today. As a result, his life was changed. Blind for three days. But God has a plan. He doesn't just want to encounter you in order to change you. He wants to include you in a group of people. It wasn't just enough for Saul to be transformed on the road to Damascus. More stuff was in store. So I know you were going to Damascus to take 
uh, captive some people back to, to, to Jerusalem and to put them in chains, I realized that, but I had a whole other reason for you to go to Damascus. I know you were coming to Washington for some reason. I know you came here because you had a good job. I know you came here because you found somebody who you really love online. But I got another reason for you. There's something else. You're like Saul, not this Saul, the other Saul in the Old Testament, who was called by God to lead. And, 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 and all of a sudden, he had to go out and find his daddy's donkeys. His daddy's donkeys just went missing, but he was responsible. And that's like, that's like losing an entire fleet of, 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 of commercial trucks. You don't just lose those. So you got to go find them. And then they couldn't find them, and they had to go to the prophet in order to discern where they were. And the prophet was Samuel. And God tells Samuel before Saul gets here, there's a dude coming to you. He's, he's to be the next king of Israel. When he comes, tell him so. He's looking for his daddy's donkeys. He's coming to you for another reason. But he's coming to you for me. Shows up, hey, uh, what do we need to pay you in order to, for you to discern where the donkeys are? He says, sit down, you're going to be king. Saul so said, what? what? I didn't come here for that, I know. But God brought you here for that. Saul, in the New Testament, came for a whole other reason. But God brought him to Damascus to meet some people, somebody who would disciple him. Listen to me. When you get right with God, you need to be discipled. You need somebody in your life who can help you, who can springboard you to your progress faster than you could ever walk there on your own. That's all discipleship is. It's somebody helping you with their victory and their understanding of Scripture to get you to where you need to be faster. You need to be discipled. And we've got discipleship tools in our church that help you, to help you get to where you need to be faster. I beg you, do it. Ananias, there's a man named Saul, and he's come here. And I've touched him. I want you to go to a street called Straight, go to a man named Judas's house, and go pray for this man, because I got some great stuff for him to do. Uh, yeah, um, like, Lord, you know who this man is? Like, he's got orders from the chief priest to take anybody in who's, who's following Jesus. And, um, like, that's me. And you want me to go to... Now, <laughs> He's talking to God. This is another Moses situation in, in microcosm. He's talking to God. God knows all that stuff. And, and then and, 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 and the hard part with this, as Ananias was going through this, the Lord said, and I've shown him your face. Well, what'd you do that for? I mean, this dude, you didn't have to do that, Lord. You didn't have to. You are duly incentivized now, aren't you? He knows who you are regardless of whether you show up. But, wow. Okay, he goes, knocks on the door. I mean, he's praying in tongues the whole way. You know, he is great. Lord, oh God, please protect me, protect me. He goes in, prays for Saul. The scales on Saul's eyes fall off. When you get right with God, remember, you don't see everything yet. Sometimes you need somebody to help you see. Somebody to help the scales fall off your eyes. That's what discipleship does. Thank Ananias does not get enough pub in Scripture. Now, he got the right amount from God. But I don't think many people concentrate on him as much as they need to to understand how did Saul become the man he was? How did that happen? What a guy. 
the foremost apostle in the New Testament, wrote most of the epistles that we read? My goodness, how did that happen? Especially when he was a violent aggressor against the church. It seems like it would take him longer to get better, but he just popped out and all of a sudden was great. How does that happen? Usually it does not unless you have somebody disciple you. You want to be great in a hurry? Get discipled. I don't think that I can be put in the category of what I just said, but there was an accelerant to my progress. I got right with God in March of 1981. I went in the ministry, full-time ministry, in December of 1981. I got right with God at the end of March. I went into ministry at the beginning of December. Seven and a half to eight months. I don't know who thought that was a good idea. But that was me. But what I did do is I latched on to people who could help me progress in a hurry. No one could ever confuse me with being great. But I was at least eager. I came here and Mark Koch discipled me. Nine months later, I was here in August of 1982, helping to plant this church and reaching out to Howard University as my primary responsibility. And Mark Koch discipled me for, for nine, ten years on family. The stuff I gave you at the beginning came from him. The way I was able to raise my children was because I saw him raise his. I did not have any of this model growing up. None of it. I didn't come out of my mama's womb with a Bible. I didn't know the Lord's Prayer by, by age one. My parents did the best they possibly could, and they were amazing. But I didn't know what to do right in terms of family. I learned it because I was discipled. There's not a time in my my spiritual life when somebody hasn't helped me and is still helping me. I've been walking with Jesus almost 40 years now. Yeah, it'll be 40 years in March. And I'm still on the phone with people. What do I do here? Help me here. I'm 60. You should have figured it out by now, right, Brett? No, I never figure it all out. And because of that, in in no small way, you're here. You're here. I've learned to make decisions in the best interest of the church and sacrifice my well-being for yours. I've learned what it meant to be a good shepherd because I've had good models. None of it comes as a result of Brett knowing what to do on his own. It's because Jesus has helped me when people helped me. They've taught me how to hear from God on my own. And even when I do hear from God on my own, I go back to them and say, what do you think? Because my filters aren't near as good as they ought to be. It might be too much of Brett, not enough of God. Help me in this. What are you hearing about what I'm hearing? That's the way I live my life. And let me tell you what it does. It gives you all a sense of safety whereby you can breathe and say, this congregation probably isn't going to do stupid probably is not going to go left when they ought to go right. Probably is going to figure out how to obey the Bible as best they know how. Mistakes will be made, no question. But we will do more right than wrong. It allows you to to live in an environment whereby trust is developed. Why? Because your pastor is discipled and has been discipled. Ananias worked with Saul and made him into such a firebrand. I mean, like, wow. So much so, 
that his, his experience, his, he encountered Christ, he experienced community. It says that not only was there, was there Ananias there, but he hung out with the believers. So everybody in Damascus hung out with, with Saul. We don't know how long, but we do know it was probably every day trying to help him because this was the biggest conversion in all of Christendom. It was, it was the talk of the time. Who got saved? No. No. Listen, the word got out, but nobody believed it. When, when Saul came to Jerusalem, they didn't believe a thing about him being right. They thought he was a plant. He's coming here to spy us out. He's going to go back and inform all the other authorities, and they're going to come get us, and we're going to wind up in jail and on crosses. It's going to be horrible. Don't believe it. It's not true. It's not true. It's not true. Nobody. It was so unusually fantastical, wild, fantastically wild, that nobody believed it. The biggest conversion in all of Christianity in the first century. And the disciples hung around this guy to help teach him culture, to help him understand the Old Testament, because that's all they had then. They didn't have a new yet. How the scriptures in the Old Testament related to who Jesus was. And we don't know exactly how he got there, but we do know that the small group format, this discipleship format, was part and parcel to his progress, which is why you need to be in a small group. It's not just one person. It's about how you can help other people as well. Your participation in others' lives is huge. You may say, well, I, I don't know enough to be able to help anybody. Go to one small group. And now you know more than most people who didn't attend that small group. And if you're one step ahead of somebody, then that means you can help the person you're one step ahead of. But there's one thing I can guarantee, that if you don't stay in your word on a regular basis and you don't hang out with people who can help your progress more than you can be progressing on your own, then you are not going to be as helpful as you ought to be to anybody else. Small groups are those which encourage you, people around you, that some of them have a similar lifestyle to yours, some of them are different, but they add value to whoever you are and whatever you're doing, and you add value to them. It's a, it's a catalyst for growth in your life. Saul was a part of this small group. It said he hung out with the disciples. What is that except a small group? And as a result, something unusual happened as I close. He encountered Christ. He experienced community through Ananias and, and his small group. And it says then immediately he went out and began to, to teach, preach, proclaim that Jesus was the Son of God. Wait, where did he get that from? That's not what Jesus said on the road. He just said, I'm Jesus whom you're persecuting. He didn't say he was the Son of God. Where did he get that? except in the discipleship environment. Who is Jesus again? Because Jesus, hear me, in all of his sermons when he was at, in Jerusalem, he never said that to anybody. That was revealed when Matthew was asked by Jesus, who do you say that I am? In a private conversation, in a small group moment, Matthew, excuse me, I messed that up. In Matthew 16, verse 13, Jesus asks Peter, who do you say that I am? Peter, in a small group environment moment, says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. He said, flesh and blood, Jesus says, did not reveal that to you, but my father who is in heaven. That was not a sermon for everybody else. That was a small group moment, a revelatory moment where all the disciples said, oh, 
My goodness, that's who you are. You're not just a wonderful prophet. You're not just in the line of, line of David who can, who can sit on this throne and be the Messiah. You actually came from heaven? Oh, my goodness. Nobody knew that except the disciples and those who may have been extended from them. It was not a public sermon. Where did Saul get that info except in the small group environment? Revelation comes in small groups. Information comes in small groups. And as a result, this man went out and said, I can't keep this to myself. I got to go out and tell everybody else. Nobody even laid hands on him yet to be ordained. He hadn't gone to seminary yet. It says immediately he went out and began to proclaim in the synagogues, not just in the populace. That would have been easier. In the synagogues where he knew he was going to get opposition, that Jesus was the Son of God. That man was changed and emboldened by the disciples that he met in his small group environment. God changed his soul and gave him courage that was instilled from those around him. We are to extend the kingdom. It's not just about encountering Christ for ourselves so we can get to heaven and be right. Or just fellowshipping in a wonderful environment that's called family makes us feel more included. It's about making sure that we take this message out to people who desperately need it and don't know anything about Jesus. We are called to extend the kingdom. And you do not have to have a seminary degree to do that. You don't have to be knowledgeable about all the scriptures. What you do have to have is this, a legitimate story about how Jesus transformed your life. Be able to communicate your, 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 your two-minute testimony about what Jesus has done for you, your elevator conversation. This is what I was. This is how he transformed me. This is who I am now. You tell that story over and over and over and over again. And it becomes something whereby when you, sh when you share it, people think, are you a minister? You get so good at it. Are, are you like a pastor? Mm, no, I'm just a Christian that's trying to figure out how to extend the kingdom, how to help people understand the purpose in God. This is our threefold mission, to encounter Christ, to experience community, and to extend the kingdom. If we do that, we'll touch our community have people grow up and serve God well. Let's pray. Father in heaven, help us as we do our best to try to serve you in this community.